as we talk about unordinary prayer. Today we're going to be looking at the concept of what's called unordinary prayer. And as I talk about prayer today, um, my hope and my intention is to step on all of our toes about our prayer life. If I were to ask us, if I were to go around the room and say, tell me about your prayer life, how do you feel like it's going? Probably most of us would go, ah, it's not where it should be. But we, we don't know what that, that should is. It's just kind of like this nebulous idea of what should is. But we just know we're not there. And my goal today is for us all to kind of be, to allow the Holy Spirit and through, through Paul's words to kind of to step on our toes about that very topic. And as you have your Bibles open in Romans 15, we're going to be looking at this passage. And it's going to be on your screen here. It says, at present, however, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they are pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the bless, spiritual blessings, they ought to be of some or service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I am delivered that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Will you pray with me as we get started this morning? Father, thank you for this time that we can be together. Thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that today that as we look at it, we study it, I pray, Father, that your word will be what's remembered. I, may, I pray that my opinion will be forever forgotten. And Lord, I pray even again that people would forget that I even preached this sermon to them, but they will remember the truths of it from your word. And may it change us. May it make us more like you. May it, may it rejuvenate our prayer life. Father, not just for one time, but for all time. God, may you receive all the honor and glory through our study of your word today. And we pray this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. It seems like in this passage, Paul's taken a, a left turn. Remember last week, Paul talked about wanting to preach the gospel to those who had never heard it. He doesn't want to preach on anybody else's foundation. He just wants to go straight to a place where no one's ever heard the gospel, and he wants to go there. But all of a sudden, Paul now says, I'm going to Jerusalem because I need to do something. Paul's got to uh, deliver a financial gift that this church has uh, to the church there in Jerusalem that the believers in Greece have made for him or made for them. And instead of going full steam into the world, into the regions where the gospel had not been proclaimed, he heads in the other direction to assist the believers there. And I was reading this going, it's kind of weird, Paul. You just said, I want to go preach the gospel where it's never been named, but I got to go back to where it was first named. Like, why? Why would you do that? And then it hit me because Paul is placing equal importance on two different things. As much as he wants to share the gospel with those who've never heard it, specifically Spain, he wants also to go and refresh and help believers in Jerusalem. He sees them as, as two different things. Uh, sorry, two equal things. He sees them as that important. 
And then I asked myself the question, why? Why does Paul think that sharing this monetary gift with the church in Jerusalem is just as important as getting the gospel to people who've never heard it? Why does he think that? Because if we were to measure this out, if we were to take another survey and go one through five, one being the most important, five being the least important, all of us, I believe, would say getting the gospel to people who've never heard it is number one with a bullet. And maybe number two, maybe number three, some of us might even go four and five, is going and sharing a financial gift with somebody. But for some reason, Paul says they're equal. As I started thinking about why Paul thinks that, I really feel like the answer is found not even in this book. You're like, well, what do you mean? I want you to fast forward to the end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. And we'll come back to Romans. We'll get there. We're going, the whole bulk of our message is there. But I want you to take a look at Revelation chapter 2. Specifically, we'll be in verses 1 through 7, where Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus. Now, i got to give you a little bit of background about this Ephesian church. It's a very well-known church in the Bible. Paul dedicates a whole letter to it. John writes a letter to it, being 1 John, and then we see it mentioned again here in Revelation. Now, the first time Ephesus is mentioned, or this Ephesian church is mentioned, is in Acts 19, where Paul meets some disciples of John the Baptist and then teaches them about Jesus, who is the Christ. And then after that, there's this evangelistic explosion in the city of Ephesus. And it's so wide that it begins to cause this upheaval really in the socioeconomic order of Ephesus. Now, a little bit of quick history here. In Ephesus, they worshipped Artemis, this fake god of the Greeks. And they actually believed that when a meteorite hit the city several years, generations before this time period, that was Artemis giving um, them a gift. And they would make statues of Artemis, and the whole wealth of the city was based on Artemis worship. Are you with me? So here's what happens. In Acts 19, some three months into the ministry, the very economy of the city is threatened. It's, I'm going to have it on the screen here for you. Acts 19 says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance. I like the, the way that version is. No little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Luke is an understatement guy, all right? He's saying there was a big problem because Demetrius made big money and Artemis is getting attacked and now Demetrius is going to start losing some money. He, he got hit in the pockets, all right? And so he brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Understatement of the lifetime. All right? And, Demetrius says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Because if you were an Artemis worshiper, you came to Ephesus to get your shrine. So the money is being hit. 
And then later in that same passage, Luke writes that this, the, the crowd is so enraged that they lead a city off in a riot. See, here's the thing. The message of Jesus was so, um, as the one true God, was so scandalous in this city that it threatened the way of life to the wealthy within it. And it really hit them in their pockets. And then we see in Ephesians, in Paul's letter, he has to take the time, after this church has been around for a while, he then has to take the time to share with them the universal need for salvation for all men, women, and children, regardless of their ethnicity or their religious background. Specifically speaking about Jews and Gentiles, he talks about there needs to be unity between them. And as this story of Ephesus progresses in the Bible, John writes in 1 John that he uh, has to show them there that they need to strengthen believers and then clarify some faulty theological thinking that had crept in their door. So look how it starts. The gospel in Ephesus starts with so powerful, it just threatens the economy of the city. But then there's some issues with unity in the church. And then in their, their, their striving for unity, they start letting in all types of false teaching in. And John has to go, wait a minute, too much unity. That's, that's not, that's too much. You've got to protect doctrine. You've got to protect your theology. All that to get into Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation 2, you're, you're there looking at it. In verses 2 through 3, we find that the Ephesian church had taken John seriously. And they had become known as a theologically sound assembly. Look at verses 2 through 3. Paul, uh, John says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So we see here like, man, you've listened to me. John goes, you listened. You're killing it theologically. But look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You abandon the love you had at first. You might see, your translation may say your first love. You see, Jesus' problem with Ephesus was not over them believing the right things, but in loving well. They believed the right things. Ephesus was a church that had it all together theologically, but somehow had grown cold in their compassion for the lost, for their community, and even each other. And, and somewhere, somehow, they forgot the part of the mission that Jesus assigned them and that had taken up, was taken up by the first generation of that church, and they began to get caught up in battles with false teachers. The first generation of Ephesus was doing it well, so much so that they threatened the economy of the city. But this second generation, maybe even third, had gotten off track. Two authors I really like to read, Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck write this. He says, they say, this is a great danger for doctrinally sound churches. They can be quick to judge and slow to forgive. They analyze everything and everyone. They are used to, so used to fighting against the world that when they get bored with that, they turn and fight among themselves. They always need to be against something, always purifying something always looking for error or inconsistency. This is why many denominations that split up, ending splitting again, fighting gets in their blood. And before we move on, I want to take one look, though. We're not done with Ephesus. Look at verse 5. 
Because I think this is the most powerful part of this. In verse 5, Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Meaning, remember where you were in that first generation. You guys were killing it. Remember that. Repent and do the works you did at first. Go back to that. Do what that first generation was doing. How they were loving Christ. They were loving people. They were loving one another. And they were sound theologically. Look at, the, look at this next slide. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And you're like, okay, that's revelation talk. But did you see that? What what was the judgment for their failure to repent? It was the removal of their lampstand of the Ephesian church. Now, different commentators say different things. I'm just going to give you my opinion. And you know how I was taught. Opinions are like armpits. We all have them, and sometimes they stink. But this is my opinion. You ready? The lampstand is the church itself. Its influence and even its presence in the world. You see, when Ephesus refused to let that light shine by way of neglecting to love the lost and love each other, they in essence extinguished their own influence in the world in which they lived. Again, may I refer back to Cluck and DeYoung, the light of Ephesus had grown dim. They had good deeds, but not in love for one another. They defended the light, but they were not shining it into the dark places of the world. That is a powerful line right there. They defended the light, talking about the gospel, but they weren't sharing it. They were bearing witness to Jesus Christ in their love or in their testimony. And as a result, Jesus says, I will come and take away your light if it does not shine. And sadly, he did. There's no church at Ephesus. This is not the reason every church closes its doors, but certainly it has been true many times and continues to be true that churches which refuse to live and shine and bear witness in the world will die. Let this be a warning to all Ephesus churches. Here it is. Give the gospel away or lose it. Brothers and sisters, can I say it's the same for us today? We should be so consumed with sharing the love of Christ that it becomes our first thought, our goal, our mission in everything we do. Every service, every ministry, every sermon, every Sunday school lesson, everything. Our budgets should reflect it. Our churches should be immersed in it. Our lives should parrot it because the message is clear. Give the gospel away or lose the opportunity to do so. Now you're like, okay, Rick, that, that, was, that was Ephesus, but we're in Romans. I know. Because I'm asking myself, how can we at Salem avoid the same mistakes that Ephesus made? How can we avoid the same fate and risk losing our opportunity we have in this city, this country, this region, this world, of making sure that the gospel is heard of those who've never heard it? Because that's what Paul's aim was. He wanted to go to Spain. How can we avoid that same fate? And I think the answer is found in this passage that Paul writes in Romans 15. So with that, let's go back to Romans 15 and see what Paul has for us so we can avoid the fate of Ephesus. Because we see in this passage that Paul has an unordinary way of thinking about gospel ministry in which he was called. First, you ready? Paul believed that, for those, that love for those from whom he re- we receive the gospel is as important as our desire to reach others. 
In the passage we read today, Paul is stating that believers in Greece were eager to give financially to the church in Jerusalem. I mean, imagine that for a minute. Imagine me saying, I'm not going to be at Salem next week because I'm going to go visit this church down the street, and I'm going to ask them and say, listen, we're short on budget. You got some money you could give us? How would that work out? What if a member of another church or a pastor of another church came here next Sunday and said, listen, we're short on our budget. Could you help us out? Now, some will go, absolutely. But some will be like, take care of yourself. But this is what's happening here. The churches in Greece were saying, we want to give to the church in Jerusalem to help them. And then I have to ask my favorite question, why? Why were they willing to do this? Because it was from the Jerusalem church that the gospel began to spread to the world at that time. The people in Greece were able to get the gospel because the Jerusalem church shared the gospel. Think about it this way. They were like the first generation, and the Greeks owned a gospel debt to the Jerusalem church. We owe them this because they sacrificed for us to make sure that we got the gospel. These Greek believers were so grateful that the gospel reached them, allowing them to hear, believe, and be reconciled to God through Christ, that they were overflowing with gratefulness and and with the opportunity to give back. These believers saw it as something they owed to this first believing church in Jerusalem. They recognized this gospel debt, this generational debt that they owed to the generations before them that somehow the Ephesian church had either forgotten or lost. Remember that. So what do we do? How do we at Salem Baptist Church do this thing that Paul's telling us? Here it is. While I think that there are many ways we can do this on an individual basis, maybe even a corporate level, I think the first thing I, should, I want to suggest, or really the only thing I want to suggest today is, how do we do this corporately? How do we corporately do this? How can we at Salem Baptist Church demonstrate the same sense of debt to those who shared the gospel with us? You see, our current generation here at Salem, made up of the current members and attendees, we got to remember, we must remember the debt we owe to the previous generations who shared, protected, and proclaimed the gospel to us. Bible teacher Christopher Ash warns his readers this way. He says, sometimes we look back at these faithful men, that previous generation, maybe you do it too. We look back at these faithful men and women and find some of their ways old-fashioned, even quaint. We may be tempted to despise them and to criticize them for what we, and by the way, we do that with our modern omniscience. We're so smart, right? We may look back on them and criticize for what we can see as their weaknesses and their theology, And no doubt, our successors are going to think the same way of us. But we should always be grateful to those who brought us the gospel and seek to honor them in whatever way we can. If you remember last week, as I mentioned last week, I grew up in a church that could be categorized as extremely um, conservative. Conservative is not bad, but hear me out. It was the hairstyle, right? I remember there was a a barber shop just down the street from where I attended, and they had what they called like that, that church's name. Like, oh, you need that. All the men had the same looking haircut. It could be clothing. I'll be honest with you, when I got dressed this morning, I'm thinking, this, this feels weird. Because go, if I went back in the time, time a little bit, 20 some years ago, maybe even longer, when I was, well, definitely longer, when I was in my teens um, at, at school, at church, 
I would have felt really weird. But here's what I've been feel weird about. The fact that my shirt's untucked. Some of you guys are thinking, I just noticed that. You're, you, you need Jesus. Hang on. But it was the way we looked. It was, it was more about that. Even translations we used. If I had a different version of the Bible, whatever else you used, I, I would have to I would do a little armpit, hold the spine so you couldn't see what version it was. Nobody's ever done that here. You didn't grow up that way? Good. For, praise God for that. Praise God. Or if it's time in youth group, hey, why don't you read your version? Hey, will somebody else read that passage? I don't have my Bible. So then I forget. Because I knew, I had read, I remember one time reading in a youth group out of a different translation, and people, were, they were gasping. <gasps> like, what was I reading? I wasn't reading the Quran. I was reading the Bible. But it didn't mesh with them. Now, like, well, Rick, you're kind of bashing them. Hang on. Even though it was that way, within that environment, I was taught the doctrines of the faith. Though now I disagree with their conclusions on outward appearances, I'm forever, for, forever grateful on their teachings about modesty. Though I do not personally use their translation of the Bible, I am thankful that they instilled in me a love for the Word of God and a necessity for faithful study and interpretation. Thankful for it. Now, the same is true for our spiritual ancestors here at Salem. We as the current generation of Salem must adapt and look for new ways to reach out to the community, fulfilling that gospel debt we owe them, while maintaining our spiritual heritage that they left for us, those previous generations. We know the story of Salem. We were founded because a man saw children who needed to hear the gospel, and he started a Sunday school for them. It was a gospel focus. So why can't we try it too? Now, while how Sunday services may look different than previous generations, and let's be honest, they should, we must still seek to worship God rightly in spirit and truth, and we will. While our forms of outreach will look different than that which has been practiced in the past, we must still pursue the proclamation of the one true gospel to those who've not yet heard. We honor our history, our spiritual ancestors here at Salem, while looking forward to even greater days ahead. It's what we have to do. And then finally, Paul believed that prayer is vital to our ministry of sharing the gospel. He says in verse 30, he goes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And Paul uses a very strong, very emotional language to convey this request. I really think this is super cool. He uses the word appeal. And the word appeal here carries the idea of begging and pleading for action. All right? This is kind of like moms and dads, grandparents, you've said no to your, your child about something, and they go, please, and you say no, and they go, please, please, right? Like, like they could add more, right? Like more pleases will make you give in. Has that ever worked? My dad was like, dude, that, now you're annoying me. You're not, we're not doing it. He used the word appeal as a begging, pleading for them to pray. And then he used the word strive. And strive with him is the idea of joining fervently in to assisting in a struggle. And this prayer, Paul is making a twofold request. Look, first, Paul is praying for safety from the enemies of the gospel who would seek to derail his ministry. 
Paul is about to go to Jerusalem, and there are those there who believe that Paul has lost his mind. He has left the Jewish religion. He's become completely Gentile, is what they're thinking. And they've gone, he's gone away from serving the one true God. And Paul sees them as, as enemies of the gospel because they won't believe in Jesus. And he, he says that they're going to try to derail me. Second, Paul is praying for or praying that his ministry be acceptable to those who've embraced the gospel. He's going there to comfort the people of Jerusalem, and he's praying that he would be some kind of help to them. And then the reason why Paul prays that is Paul is seeking for these things to be prayed for so that when he teaches Rome or when he reaches Rome, he'll be able to be a joy to them, be refreshed by them. Hey, I, I caught this. And by the way, it's side note. I'm just going to pull over for a minute park along the highway and take a look at something here. You ready? Paul understands something we know as well. When we're stressed out by outside forces, we can't rest or be a blessing to others. If you've got your phone on you all the time and you're getting those emails from the company, how restful are you on that weekend? Not very. If you've just left the office or whatever business you're in and you've just got yelled at by a customer or an employer or an employee, how is the rest of that weekend? Not at all. Paul is saying that he's praying for deliverance from the enemies of the gospel and for a successful ministry to the saints in Jerusalem so that he'd be able to serve the church in Rome with an untroubled heart. I, th I think that's great. And here's my side note ending here. We should pray that for each other. Pray that we all have wonderful Saturdays. Why? So that we can have an amazing Sunday worship. Pray for the leaders of our church, our deacons and pastors, and say, I pray they had a great week so that when they come before us, we're there for them. And we'll avoid giving them more drama when they walk in the doors. We'll avoid the, Pastor, do you got a minute? We'll catch them later. We'll avoid catching the Sunday school teacher who's about to go to class. We'll avoid catching the nursery worker before they go and work with those children, the children before, children's workers. All right, side notes over. Let's get back in the bus. Friends, what's, what's neat here is the emotion of this passage. Paul is saying that our prayer should be more than simple and superficial happy thoughts. He's saying appeal. He's, he's begging them, and he wants them to strive with him. But even further than that, we've got to keep our focus in prayer on the main work of the gospel. That's what Paul, Paul's praying for. Paul asked these Roman Christians to join him in his struggle. And that struggle was so that the gospel be used by God to do what the gospel does. Again, I'm going to refer back to Christopher Ashe. He's got a quote here that I, when I read it, I, was, I just fell in love with it. What a great quote. And I would love for you to take a picture of this, but you're going to get an email on it this week. I just want you to see this. Look at the line. We must go for Satan's jugular in our prayers and not get distracted into majoring on minor skirmishes. You're like, what's a jugular? We'll talk about that later. But I love that line. Read it again. We must go for Satan's jugular in our prayers and not get distracted into majoring on minor skirmishes. I love this wording. All too often, our prayers for the spread of the gospel can almost carry like a feeling of hoping against hope that God would bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
You ever done it? You ever felt yourself doing that, praying for that person? But deep down, you're like, it's never going to happen. They're too far gone. Or you're praying for this issue, and you're like, I don't know. We're praying for our missionaries. They're going to a dangerous area, and we're more praying for just, just keep them safe rather than really changing the heart. Have we prayed that the gospel would do here in West Salem what it did in Ephesus? That it would change the whole socioeconomic order of things? Our prayers should be aggressive. Our prayers for the gospel to be proclaimed to those who have not yet heard should be seen in light of a battle, a war for the eternal destinies of men, women, and children who have not heard the beautiful gospel of the Savior who gave his life for them. It should be war. We should be determined, so determined in our prayer to ask God, the the God alone who can save, to save those who do not yet know Christ. Our prayers for the salvation of the lost should be unwavering, going for Satan's jugular vein, expecting God to do what only God can do, open the eyes of the blind so they behold the beauty and majesty of Christ as revealed in the gospel. Beloved, may the Spirit of God embolden us to pray this way. No longer worried about proper lingo. By the way, there's a reason why Jesus said when you pray, go into the closet and pray. And he's not saying go in your bedroom and get in the closet. The word closet in that language is, is, is the word, it's called aliyah, which is a, it's a room put on every house. Every house in the Jewish culture had one of these. It was a prophet's chamber where a traveling teacher would stay. And it was the only room in your house that had a lock. Everything else was open. So what Jesus is saying is when you pray, go pray privately. Don't pray like the, the Pharisees do who love to be heard for their many words. Go pray privately. Why? Because then you can be raw and real and you can go for Satan's jugular. I think all too often we pray very polished prayers because we want to sanctify it. Well, it's family worship, Pastor Rick. I wouldn't pray that way. But what if we did? What if we prayed this aggressive prayer that God would change the hearts of people? Change our hearts as well. May we pray this way. May we no longer be concerned with minor skirmishes. No longer praying with doubt, not expecting God to work. But praying with a boldness that comes from the knowledge that God can and will save those who don't yet know him. One of our plumb lines or our statement that defines our church's culture is that prayer doesn't just fuel the ministry. It is the ministry. We've heard it before. But brothers and sisters, I think it's time we take this statement off the printed page and the social media post and put it into practice. Now, this is, I want you to hear me correctly. This is not about creating a prayer service where we come in and someone prays and we sit and pray and our minds wander off. That's not what this is. It's about prayer everywhere, anywhere at any time, at any location, at home, at work, during your commute, by yourself, with others, as an individual, as a church. Beloved, this is not a negotiable part of church life. It is essential. So I have three things I'm asking God to do. I'm going for Satan's jugular in this, and I'm going to share this with you, and I'd like for you to go with me. I'm asking God to grant us more time to reclaim our spiritual heritage 
that was passed down from Christ to us by the founders of this church. I would delight if Jesus returned today. I would. I want to get a running start and try to beat you up there. I want, I want that. But I'm praying that God gives us more time to reclaim that because there are many people still here in West Salem who need to hear the gospel. That's number one. Number two, I'm praying that we will all desire to fulfill the gospel debt we owe them through faithful love and gospel proclamation to every man, woman, and child that we are blessed to engage with. Not seeing people as a burden on our way to our cars or our way to the next place, but as an opportunity, a divine appointment. And the last one, that we would be a church whose prayers go for Satan's jugular in reaching the lost, those who are lost and without hope, and may we pray in such a way that we, because we know we have the only thing that can give them hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me today? Our Father and our great God, thank you for your word. Today your word is, is more convicting than it is really encouraging. And that's Okay. It's a myth that every time we come to your word, we should walk away smiling because sometimes we come away having been hit hard with the truth of it. Father, I want to thank you for the example that you have in your word of the church at Ephesus that though they started off well, changing the socioeconomic culture of their city they didn't end well because they lost sight of the main thing, loving others and loving one another. God, keep us from the failure of Ephesus. Keep us from becoming a church that, even though we want to focus on the truths of your word and we make no apologies for our stand on your word, keep us from being a church that's so focused on that that we forget how to love people how to love each other. That we're quicker to create enemies than we are to create brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us to, to remember the heritage that came before us. And Lord, thank you so much for the men and women who saw the need here in West Salem. And that need was not for a new church. That need was not for anything other but the gospel be proclaimed to the lives of the children of the mill workers and the parents of these children. Father, forgive us where we've lost sight of that. And Lord, grant us repentance that we may go and begin to reclaim that heritage left for us. Help us to fulfill that gospel debt we owe to these men and women who came before us. And Father, as we do that, help us not to forget that it's through prayer and prayer alone that we can serve you. And God, help our prayers to be different. From this moment on, may our prayers not be simple, just happy thoughts sent out to the void, but Lord, may we go for Satan's jugular in our prayers knowing that we 
all of us in this room were once held captive in his grasp with no hope. But someone prayed and someone went. And they proclaimed the gospel to us and the spirit of God opened up our eyes to believe. And we were set free. God, may that be what motivates our feet as we leave Salem Baptist Church this Labor Day Sunday. And Father, we pray this in the name of the precious Lord Jesus. Amen.